I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanera, and this is the podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. My guest is Rachel Farrelly, an assistant professor of applied linguistics at St. Michael's College in Burlington, Vermont. In 2009, Rachel co-founded Project Wizesha, a nonprofit organization created specifically to address the needs of children in rural villages within the Kigoma region of Western Tanzania. The aim of the project is to empower local communities through increased access to education for the children. Rachel has now sponsored dozens of children and also started a school for girls in Kigoma. Rachel, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Tino. It's great to be here. Uh, let me start off by saying uh, Karibu Jumbo. <laughs> Asante sana. Habari jani? Mzuri sana. Na wewe? Nzuri asante. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's, that's the extent of my knowledge of Kiswahili. Uh, I'm impressed though. Um, and uh, so let's switch back into more familiar territory. Uh, of the English language uh, before I make a mockery of myself and uh, use my <laughs> listeners in the process. So um, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself, your childhood, and uh, what formative experiences would have led you to the lifestyle that you have? Yeah, um, my childhood was pretty awesome. I spent a lot of times outdoors, and it was like the cliched meme you see on Facebook where we came home, we went outside, we were barefoot until the streetlights came on. That was kind of like my childhood, except it was until dad blew the whistle, you know, and then we all came running. Um, and I'm also the daughter of Irish immigrants. So I spent every summer going home to Ireland, um, some Christmases. So I always had this sense of sort of wanderlust and adventure because my parents themselves had left their home country and come over to the U.S. Um, and they had intended to go home, but they ended up staying. My dad became a professor. And uh, so, yeah, I grew up in South Carolina and traveled a lot. And my parents are amazing individuals. My mom's an emergency room nurse. My dad's a professor. They're both extremely compassionate and empathetic. And they modeled that for my brother and I throughout our whole life. So that inspired me. Do you have any examples of them practicing this empathetic lifestyle that have stuck with you? Well, like I remember, for example, this one memory that I, I, I use it often in classes to talk about empathy and just developing a compassionate self. My brother and I were probably six and four, respectively. I'm older than him. And we were in Dublin with my dad. And he took us across a really busy street. And then he left us there and told us to stay put. And he went back across the street. And he grabbed the arm of this really old man hunched over with his cane. And he walked him slowly across the intersection. And that that just stamped on my brain at such an early age, just sort of that notion of 
helping others and serving others. And then my mom as a nurse, I mean, we couldn't pass a medical emergency or an accident or someone in need where she wasn't stopping. And that went for animals as well. The woman never killed anything. We took spiders out, crickets, cockroaches, you name it. So I just always sort of had that empathic orientation to help other people because of my parents, really. Hmm. That's, that's great. And so um, you grew up uh, in South Carolina, you said. And yep. uh, what happened going into college and beyond? Um. Well, interestingly, because my parents are from Ireland, they didn't have a good sense of the American education system. So I didn't get a whole lot of advice or guidance on how to get to college or what to do, but it was never questioned that I would go. So when the time came, I just put out a bunch of applications, um, ended up staying in state for financial reasons, uh, and then didn't know what I was going to do. I started out a biology major, thought I was going to go into medicine, didn't like large classes where I was anonymous. And so I switched over to Spanish because those classes were fun and small and the teacher knew my name. And I think in some ways that informed who I am as an educator today, but it also sparked my love of travel. And so from a very early time in college, I ended up uh, deciding to go study abroad in Guatemala when I was 19. Um, and that just, that was it. That was the spark that lit the huge wildfire that took me all around the world on, on lots of different trips. And what were you doing while you were there? Um, well, I went on a few different trips to study Spanish to Mexico and Guatemala. I went on a few different trips simply to go surfing or riding a bike or um, taking other adventures, a lot of rock climbing in a few different countries from Peru and Bolivia to Sweden and Spain. And then ever since I started doing the work in Tanzania, it's been more trips, multiple trips to Tanzania year after year to do that work. And then in my professional life now as a professor, I go to a lot of other countries presenting at international conferences about education uh, related to teaching English as an additional language and educating refugee background adults. So that work has taken me to Finland, Spain, Rwanda, Sudan. So yeah, and travel is just kind of part of me now. So how did you end up in Tanzania? So related to that work as a teacher, I started teaching these groups of Burundi women back in 2006. It was the first wave of Burundi refugee populations we were seeing in Utah. And so I went from being this English language teacher who was awesome in the classroom. I could show up with my papers and my activities and the students just hit the ground running. And now I'm working with this population that I'd never interacted with, who had no first language literacy, who had never been in school, and I had to just relearn how to be a teacher. And part of what I wanted to do was learn about these women and where they came from. So I started investigating Western Tanzania, where they had been in the refugee camps in the Kigoma region near Kasulu. Hmm. And at that same time, serendipitously, a friend introduced me to a Tanzanian who was getting his PhD at Utah State in, in Logan, Utah. And he was starting a nonprofit over in the Kigoma region. So I was like, hey, can I come over? I really want to help out. I want to visit the, the refugee camp in the region. So I ended up going over there and um, helping out with his nonprofit for about seven weeks. Was and this the first time you had gone to the African continent? Were you nervous, excited? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was really exciting. You know, it, was, it felt... Um, it was so, so remote and so far away, but because it was through this individual it felt very doable. And so I lived in the village for the whole time I was there. And 
did get to travel to the refugee camps, did get to visit the families of my students and give them some photographs and some money and some letters oh, nice. from their family in Utah. Yeah, oh, wow, that, was, cool. that was really special. Mm-hmm. Wow. What yeah. was your experience like? Uh, I'm assuming there weren't too many other Westerners uh, with you uh, during that time. No, no, I was I was the only one there. And uh, it was amazing. I mean, there's nothing more sort of touching than being this connection between these groups of people. And this is before everyone was using Facebook and WhatsApp, so they couldn't be sending each other digital photos. So I'm, I'm handing over photographs of babies they haven't seen. And to this day, those families haven't been reunited. A lot of the ones that were still in the camp at the time ended up going back into Burundi. Um, some may even still be in the camp. One little girl passed away shortly after my visit. So yeah, it was really, really special and definitely a, a sign of my privilege that I would get to fly across the ocean like that and visit them in this camp and then dash back over to Utah and pass along some messages and some photographs. Um, but it just, it just drove home to me like how, how war and disaster and tragedies like this just drive families apart. And, um, yeah, and that stuck with me to this day in my work with refugee populations. Um, you end up now in uh, the Kingoma region, and uh, as a result of your connection with uh, with this other gentleman, what happened next? So it turned out that I didn't love the way he was doing his work, and so I, I, I knew I wasn't going to continue going back to work with him. I was brought over to do some English language teacher training and curriculum development, but there was no school in place, so I was a little misled. So I had fun because I was in Tanzania for the first time, went to coffee plantations, went to Gombe National Park, started learning Swahili, playing with the kids, but I wasn't doing what I came to do. But in the meantime, I did identify uh, five kids with my friend Lucas, who's a, he's in, he's my co-founder of Project Wazesha and he lives in Tanzania. He helped me identify five kids in need that I could support by paying their secondary school fees. So that first year after I left, I helped those kids get through secondary. And then I went back the following year just to visit. And at that point, we went to a neighboring village. And I asked the village leaders if there was anything that I could do to help them add a classroom or two to their primary school. And they were really assertive. They knew what they needed and what they didn't need. And they said, nope, we don't need that. But what we do need is a secondary school because our kids are walking way too far to go to secondary. So... Ironically, I had just read Three Cups of Tea on the way over, and um, at that time, it was still a big source of inspiration, and so I said, yes, I said, yeah, I can help build a school, and came home and brainstormed and fundraised and founded Project Wazesha, and then returned the following year with $10,000, which isn't a lot, but it was enough to break ground and put down foundation and start the process. Wow, so hang on a minute. Uh, I've got like a thousand questions going in my head right now. <laughs> so um, who is Lucas uh, Lamech and how did he get involved? And then why did you decide that you wanted to now do something different from what uh, this other gentleman was doing? Yeah, so Lucas Lamech is... My brother. I love him so much. We've been working together now for all these years, and I love him. I love his family. Um, he's very dear to me. So he actually was working for this individual in, in Kiganza Village, where I was staying the first summer. And so he was assigned to me. He's like, okay, Yared said, stay with her. You speak English. Go everywhere she goes. So 
Yared would disappear and go off on trips and come and go, but Lucas and I were glued at the hip for seven weeks. And so we just became really close. And um, like I said, by the, over the course of those, those weeks, he helped me find some students to support. And then when I came back a year later, in the meantime, Lucas had been let go from that organization. And he still escorted me to all these villages. And he went with me to talk to the village leaders of Mgaraganza village, which is the one I work with now. And so he was, you know, he was instrumental to starting Project Wazesha because I communicated with him and through him. He had all of the local intel that I needed to make good choices and good decisions in terms of how to how to approach a meeting or how to, you know, make an offer, um, what's fair price-wise as I'm, you know, moving through the country. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, Lucas, should we do this? Should we, what should we call it? And, you know, we came up with Project Wazesha because Wazesha means empower in Kiswahili. And uh, so that's, that's kind of how that started. And we've been together working alongside each other ever since. He even named his second daughter after me just recently. Oh, no way. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. So the students that you were asked to support, uh, where did that come in? Was that part of your mission originally to go and find, identify students to support? Yeah. So after those first five, when we decided to found Project Wazesha from the get-go, we had two projects going. One was a scholarship program and one was um, the school building project. And so we, we knew at that time, secondary school fees were, were out of reach for most villagers. They just couldn't afford it. Unless you lived in town or you came from bigger cities, you didn't often send all of your children to secondary. If you did, you sent your boys. So we mm -hmm. decided to, to grow our scholarship program from those original five um, to, I think, 10, and then it was 15. So just very slowly because we couldn't, we, it was just us. It was just me in the U.S. without a lot of money, still in graduate school. So little by little, we added to the program. And initially, it was paying secondary school fees. And then when our students were graduating or completing secondary school, one unfortunate outcome was that many of them weren't passing the exit exams that would allow them to go to Form 5 and Form 6, which is their high school. And so maybe before we go there, tell, tell me, how, how does the school system work there? Yeah, so it's kind of like the British system. They have <laughs> A levels and O levels. So they have primary school, which is standard one through standard seven. And then they have secondary school, which is form one, form two, form three, form four. And then you take exams. And if you do well, you can go on to what they call high school, which is form five and form six. And then from there, you go to college or university. Got it. These are all public schools or government schools? Yeah, the ones our students go to are almost all exclusively government schools. There are lots of private schools in Tanzania, and um, the cost is quite a bit higher. We have had a couple of our students go to private schools, um, but the majority of them go to government schools. Okay. So and the way the government decides where they go, too. So when they take their exams after Standard 7, depending on how, how they do on those exams, the government sends them out all over the country to different secondary schools. And the better they perform, it seems the farther away they get sent. Like they might get sent to Dar es Salaam or Dodoma. Um, and the because ones who score the, lower stay closer. Because that's where the good schools are. Yeah. I see. Okay, so, so here you are. You're still in graduate school. And now you've committed to starting this project. Did you have any idea what it is that you were trying to do? 
Um, not really. You know, it, it seemed so easy in the very beginning <laughs> because it's just a handful of kids and a handful of school fees. And then as far as the school building was going, we were just going to raise money little by little and brick by brick get the school built. And, you know, I, I'm a blue skies idea kind of person. I think anything is possible. And um, I might have imagined that money would come more easily. Um, but, you know, it was little by little. A lot of that school was built by friends of mine who rallied year after year, holiday after holiday, my asks on Facebook. Um, but yeah, we soldiered on and uh, we got really lucky. I will say one thing that did happen for us was that uh, a random individual in Seattle contacted me and she wanted to fundraise for us through her wedding. So instead yes. of having friends give gifts, they were going to give to our project. And she wow. was originally from Tanzania. He was originally from Uganda. They're of East Indian descent, and they met in their 50s in Seattle. And she was a powerhouse at um, IBM and he at Hotels.com. And through their wedding, they raised over $40,000 for us. Wow. Yeah. So Shelmina and Minaz are common household names in Mgaraganza village. All the leaders know their names. A lot of the students know. The teachers know. Um, they're, they're like our angels. Wow, that's that's an incredible story. Uh, congratulations for that. And um, so, how did you know what you were trying to get accomplished? Uh, because I'm assuming this is not just uh, a fundraising effort. You're essentially starting a school. We knew um, right off the bat that we didn't want to run the school, so we weren't going to build a, a private school that would be run by Projectization, staffed and salaried. So we knew from early on that as soon as it was built, we would hand it over and the Ministry of Ed would run it as a government school. And typically the way villages build their schools is literally everyone chips in and little by little, brick by brick, classroom by classroom, they build a secondary. So it can take many, many years to build even just four classrooms and call it a secondary school. So we were on the fast track. We wanted to build 16 classrooms in this square quad shape. Um, we had it all planned out. We we used a local Tanzanian architect, and Lucas's brother, Isaya, was our general contractor. He's an amazing builder. He'd been building houses in Kigoma for years, and um, so he was our main builder. And then the village leaders gave us the land to put the school on, and it was a beautiful piece of land up on a hill. It's breezy. It's surrounded by indigenous trees. It hasn't been deforested. Um and that was one of the agreements that I, I, I just, I, I didn't ask for much because I really wanted it to be led in a local way, all the decisions and the building. And I didn't want to come in. I don't have any knowledge about building. So I didn't want to come in and have any say in how that was done. But I did request that they don't chop down trees. So um, the students are really fortunate because it's a very cool, breezy, forested school. How much money did you need to raise in order to build 16 classroom blueprint? and? Where are you now? Um, so we, I need to like go through the years and add up all the money, but we've, we definitely raised probably around a hundred thousand over all the years. Um, and all the classrooms are finished and there's aluminum roofs on all of them. Some of them do not have their floors yet. So we have seven schools and two, te sorry, seven classrooms and two teachers offices that are operational students are attending and they've got desks and chairs and blackboards and they're painted and plastered and everything's done 
And then we have two spaces that are being converted into science laboratories because the government is now mandated that all secondary schools have a science lab. So they're um, working on, you know, ventilated ceilings and all the important safety measures for a lab. But we still do have probably five or six classrooms that don't have their concrete floor yet that we are still little by little trying to help make happen. You manage this all remotely. When you're doing business like this at a distance, I learned over the years it's really, really important for there to be local buy-in. So some of the agreements with local leadership were that the villagers would contribute simple labor like carrying bricks and stones and sand up to the site so that the builders could do their work. And we would contribute the money to buy things like the wood, the metal, the nails, pay, pay the builders, um, the concrete, the lime. Um, but along the way, that was challenging. There were months went by where no villagers were showing up to help and to get things to the site. Um, so Lucas and our builder would be frustrated. And in the early years, it almost took my trip over there to go to a, a village, I mean, a leadership office in town and drag a big leader up to the village and have them sort of give a lecture and sort of <laughs> encourage the people to remember that, that I don't have children there, that we are fundraising in the United States for their kids and they have to chip in. So that was always hard and awkward, um, sort of doing those kinds of negotiations. Yeah, I, I can only imagine and sort of taking that a little bit further, you know, what were some of the challenges that you faced doing business from, from abroad, also doing business with um, people from a different culture. How did you even get credibility uh, with the people that you probably didn't even know? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's funny, the second and third years that I went back um, after founding Project Wization saying we'll be back to build a school, when they, when I came, they were in disbelief. They were like, we were sure you wouldn't come back. We see lots of white people come through and they say they're going to do this. They say they're going to do that. They never come back. And so now I've been consistently going back every year since 2009. So along along the way, you know, year after year, I got more and more credibility. And then Lucas, you know, when we started working together, he was only... 25, 24, now he's 32, and he has grown so much as a leader. You know, he was a young guy who had just finished secondary school and didn't do any school after that and didn't know anything about nonprofit management or construction or scholarship programs. So we both kind of learned together along the way, um, and I think it was our follow-through. I think just kind of coming back around year after year and continuing to contribute to the project um, that was something that got us credibility. As far as challenges, I mean, cross-culturally, it wasn't for me a huge challenge. I feel like I adapted pretty well. I really put myself in there and tried to learn the language and le learn the culture, dress appropriately, respect the different religions in the area, understand um, the politics, understand the leadership. And of course, I made some mistakes along the way, and I've learned a lot in the years. But um, I wouldn't say culture was ever a problem. The distance was hard. I mean, running a nonprofit from here, um, like I said, sometimes work wouldn't get done unless I physically showed up on site to mm. make some requests, you know, and that could be really frustrating. <laughs> so did you get any assistance from the Tanzanian government? Uh, initially, it seemed like we were definitely kind of going rogue. and <laughs> we, we had some support from the village government, village leaders. But a few years back, maybe about four years ago, we started to have more connection with the town government, the regional government of Kigoma. 
and that was great because then we had the regional commissioner behind us and he helped mobilize labor efforts. Um, we had reporters come out. They did a radio show. We had a huge opening festival party for the when the school opened in January of 2015. And that was great because we had the entire village, several leaders. Um, they put a plaque on the building. You know, they're all they like all those kind of big official things. Um, invited dancers and singers and everything. So so that was great. That that has been another sticking point. The government continuously says they'll chip in more and they'll finish this if we finish that. And we tend to do more. And so I'm always kind of pushing back a little bit like, you know, it's really your turn to step up with the science lab or with the concrete on these three classrooms or with the desks and chairs. But the money, the budget for education in Tanzania is so sparse and a lot of it goes into the towns and the bigger schools. So it leaves these village schools really under-resourced. And I can either look away and, and, and let our kids sit on rocks in the classroom, or I can whip up $3,000 and get them all desks and chairs. You know, so sometimes you make tough choices right. between <laughs> your conviction to not do everything versus get something done. And so uh, just another two questions on this. Uh, where, where do the teachers come from and who pays them? And then how do you pick which kids get to, one, get the scholarships, and then two, also get to go to these schools? Um, so for the teachers, because it's a government school, the government of Tanzania basically assigns teachers. And the way they do it in Tanzania is that once you graduate from teacher's college, you apply for positions, the government sends you wherever. You don't really get to say, oh, yeah, I want to work at Amahoro Secondary School, and you put in an application. Instead, you could be a teacher in Tabora or Arusha or Dar es Salaam, and all of a sudden you're told you're going to be dropped into Mgaraganza village. And so, and the other thing too is they only leave teachers in a, in a position for about five years and then they rotate them out. They have a belief that they will get bored or become less productive or become complacent if they stay put for too long. Huh. Um, I think that works against them because they don't really integrate into the local communities as much knowing they're leaving, especially if you get town teachers coming to live in a village. Um, a lot of them will just get a home in Kigoma town and commute in every day. So they're a little bit less connected to the children and to their families, and that can be problematic. But their salaries are paid by the government. I see. And then your kids? Uh, oh, yeah. So how we choose our kids. So initially we were choosing from the most vulnerable children's list, um, the MVC list which is something that village leaders keep. And so we were finding the students who wanted to go to secondary school, but whose parents could not afford it. And that's what we did for the first number of years. And it worked out in terms of getting students into school who otherwise wouldn't have even given it a shot. But they weren't, they didn't have a lot of support at home because their families were so poor. So they weren't able to give a lot of time to their studies and preparing for exams. So a lot of our students were finishing secondary school, but they couldn't go beyond that point. So then we, we shifted gears a little bit, and we started selecting from primary school, standard seven, we would take the top three performing students, um, particularly for um, my work with Girls Education International. We choose girls for that program, and uh, we just wanted to get kids in there who were actually going to get through and then keep going beyond secondary school if possible. Um, but one thing we did to kind of address the finishing secondary school but not making it to form 
five and form six is that we offered the opportunity for students to go to VETA, which is Vocational Education and Training Authority. It's like a vocational school. And there they could study anything from mechanics to computers to tailoring. And we've had about five or six students go through that program and get jobs right out. Wow. So you're doing all of this while you're also working full time at St. Mike's? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that fits under the challenges category <laughs> because we're also, yeah, it, for Project Wayzacia, it's just me and Lucas. And my fiscal sponsor is Girls Education International, of which I'm the executive director, and we have a board of eight women who are friends of mine, and it's all volunteer work, and everyone is busy. We all have full-time jobs. So that is a real big challenge because it's really hard to find the time to go seeking grants or corporate sponsorships or just do fundraisers. And it's all about raising money. I mean, it's that's all I need is money. <laughs> um, the one year we were the most successful at Girls Education International was the year we had a little bit of money to pay an ED and she could actually put in the time to go out and seek funding. And we were doing really, really well during that year. We had excess money to get us through the next couple of years. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I seek willing young people <laughs> who want to do things like, you know, writing grants or volunteering or having their own fundraiser because really that's what it's all about. I see. Yeah, I, mean, I guess uh, that would have been my follow-up question is how, how do people get involved? Um, yeah, so on our, on, on the Girls Ed website, girlsed.org, we have a supporter toolkit and it's got some ideas for how people can think of creative fundraising opportunities like a schools for schools or students for students where a classroom does some kind of a project to raise money and sends it over. Um, simply donating and there's links on both projectwaysasia.org and girlsed.org. Um, those are, that's really useful. And uh, there's also on that supporter toolkit, there's a, a link to Amazon. If you simply go through Amazon Smiles when you buy things on Amazon and choose to go via our link, then we get a little bit of a kickback there. So yeah, there's there are a lot of opportunities, cool creative opportunities for fundraising, like tabling today, um, October 11th is International Day of the Girl. So tabling at events around that or having your own you know, clothing swap or sale or wine party. There's so many ways people can have little tiny initiatives and uh, and contribute that way. And just tell me a little bit more about Girls Education International. What what is that, and how does that work with uh, Wayseisha? Yeah. So at, at the say, a couple of years into Project Wayseisha, I found myself signing on to be a board member for Girls Education International. And it was founded by two climbers, two girls I know from Colorado, who had a, a climbing accident in Pakistan, found themselves in this village, and realized there were no schools for girls. So it started um, with a project in Pakistan. And then down the road, as I was involved in both, both organizations, I partnered Project Wayzacia with Girls Ed, and we opened the Tanzania Project. So Girls Ed specifically has scholarships for girls in Pakistan and Tanzania. And we pay school fees in Pakistan. That includes paying transportation to get these girls from very remote regions into the schools where they study. So we support 90 girls in Pakistan and 45 girls in Tanzania. Wow. And, 
Yeah, and those are, you know, really, really amazing projects because in the developing world, child marriage and childbirth are the leading kind of causes of death among young girls in the developing world. It's it's not hunger, it's not war, it's actually childbirth. Yeah, childbirth is a, is a big killer. So if you can put off, you know, marriage, and we've seen that in a lot of our girls who, you know, all the villagers were like, you need to stop school and just get married. What are you doing wasting your time with education? What can you do with this? And the girls start advocating for themselves and saying like, no, this is what I want to do. I want to study. I want to keep studying. I want to have a small business. And um, and those girls, they just make me so proud. We have a few of them that are popping in my mind right now. And I just, I love how how much they've stood up for what they've wanted and, and how much it's really going to change their life. And then when they do become mothers, it's going to be just this great ripple effect and their kids will be empowered through their education. So that's a good segue into my next question, which is, uh, I'm assuming your first batch of students uh, must be in their mid to late 20s by now. Um, are there any who have become success stories of the program, or is that not even the right way of looking at it? No, that is a good way of looking at it, um, because there have been success stories and there have been, you know, I guess what you could call failures, but maybe not. But but yeah, we have, for example, right now, three of our, our first boys, Debate, Saidi, and Tumsifu, they just passed their form six examinations and have been accepted to go to universities in Tanzania and debate and Tumsifu are planning to study medicine. Um, they both were so impacted by all of the loss and tragedy they saw in their villages that they decided they wanted to study medicine and make a difference. They're both interestingly interested in maternal health and I think they were impacted by how many women died in childbirth. So, um, yeah, they want to do women's health care, yeah. And Saidi wants to be an economist. His parents were farmers. They lived at the farm constantly, and Saidi was raised by his grandparents, and he just saw how hard his parents worked, basically just to bring home food, not even to make a lot of money. So he wants to um, help people develop financial literacy, learn how to invest their money, save their money, start businesses, become more successful. And then um, Diana was in that first group of five that I supported. She didn't pass her secondary exams, but we went, we sent her to VETA, and she studied computer skills and um, an office clerical work. And now she is an office assistant in a law office in Kigoma Town. And every time I go, I bump into her in the street, and she's just this beautiful young woman, you know, just dressed to the nines, looking lovely, loving her job, and she's so happy, and she still supports her family back in the village. Wow, that's that's great. I'm uh, sure it's a source of pride for you. It is. It's amazing. And now with social media, they're all from from wherever they are in Tanzania, and we also have two working in Oman. They're always WhatsApping me and Facebooking <laughs> me and sending me videos and voice messages and so just to even see them going from these young folks who barely spoke a word of English to being able to chat with me in English and send me messages, it's really amazing. It's beautiful. Um, I know particularly when you look at uh, the more conservative elders or religious elders, they might uh, be looking at you, a white woman uh, from the West, you know, kind of espousing education and, you know, woman empowerment, etc. How is that all being received? You know, it's it's gone over really well. I haven't, the only pushback I've received has been mostly from men and mostly around my my 
requests or, or for them to do more work around the school. But as far as the education part goes, um, one thing we've started doing in the last year is having a study camp, one in December and one in June, to sort of give them an extra boost for what they've been learning throughout the year. And so the students come, and for 30 straight days, they all board at a school in Kigoma Town, and we pay teachers to teach them around the clock. And they don't just study subjects. They also study sort of how to take care of yourself, how to fetch water, you know, cleaning for yourself, getting your own food, cooking, prepping, all this kind of stuff. So this past June, we had a meeting with all the parents, and they wanted to share, and this was, you know, fathers and mothers, they wanted to share how much it's impacted their daughters and their sons. Their their kids now come home after school, drop down under a tree, and other kids sit around them, and they start sharing what they're learning or sharing what they did at camp or sharing sharing even in the responsibilities around the house. I had mothers and fathers tell me that, oh, my daughter was kind of lazy before. I couldn't get her to help out. I couldn't get her to do her homework. Now she comes home. She does her chores. She breaks out her book, and she starts studying and they've just said that the difference has been so tremendous. And I think that um, that's the positive kind of reception that we want. And it's the positive word we want them to be spreading around to others who aren't part of the program. So luckily, I think it's been pretty well received. Hmm. So do you think that we are doing enough to promote social responsibility, philanthropy, um, and the sort of work that you are doing uh, for these uh, underprivileged children? If I even just think of here at St. Michael's College, um, I came here from the American University of Armenia and coming to a liberal arts college with a high tuition, I was worried that I would be working with students who have so much privilege that they they wouldn't know what to do with it. And and the opposite has been true. I've I've discovered so many students here who are so tapped into local communities and want to find ways to give back and do it in a responsible way. And and I've also been really impressed by so many of my colleagues here who are invested in community engaged learning and social justice. Um, there's been a lot of work here at the campus around racial justice and bias incidents since the election. So I think stuff is being done, but I just feel like we're so saturated with with information anymore because of social media that I think people have a hard time knowing where to put their passion. You know, is it is it is it the stray dogs or is it girls' education? Is it human rights? Is it racism? Is it the environment? It's like, you know, back in my day, you just like got a pamphlet for Greenpeace and that was your thing. You know, <laughs> now it's like, ah, what do I do? Who do I support? So That's it's like true. compassion fatigue and it paralyzes people, I think. So, Rachel, what's the future for Project Rosacea? So, Project Rosacea has always been really responsive to our students' needs. Um, as I mentioned, we started with just doing secondary school fees, and we added on the option of going to vocational school. Then we had kids reach high school, and now we're happily paying three sets of university fees. So, I think we're going to just keep on working um, to respond to what our students need, and as we get more students in the program, we'll see what different paths they go on, and, um, and we're just going to keep on keep on listening to them and seeing where they go. And um, we're going to continue working with our partner, Girls Education International, and try to increase the number of girls that we support, and continue with our study camps in, in December and June, because that's been really beneficial to sort of boost our students' uh, performance in their courses and on their exams. And organizationally, we'd love to grow our support base, um, donors, volunteers, board members. 
So anyone who kind of feels the call after listening to this, if they want to see how they can be involved, that would be great. Fantastic. And I'll get you out of it here on this last question. Why are you doing this? <laughs> oh, you know, I, I just, I don't know. <laughs> I love, I went over there. It got in my heart. Jane Goodall um, has this book called Africa in My Blood, and she talks about how as soon as she got over there, it just got in her, and she couldn't stop going back. And I'm kind of the same way. I just love Tanzania. I love the people and the students, and I don't have children of my own, but I feel like I have about 70 children in Tanzania. And so it's really, it's it's absolutely a labor of love and passion for me. I, just, I love working with these kids and seeing how their lives are changing and how it's impacting them. And the love is returned tenfold. They're just so grateful and and yeah, it's it's definitely out of love. That's fantastic. God bless you for that. So in closing, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests. It goes like this. If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what was a wisdom would you say to yourself? Hmm. Um... I, well, depending on how young I am, <laughs> my youngest versions of myself, I would say, do it again. Keep doing exactly what you're doing. Get out and play and care about people and care about animals. Um, and the slightly older version of myself in my 20s, I would say volunteer more. Get involved a little bit more um, and sort of get not get out of your own world, but try to find a good way to blend what you're doing in the mountains with what matters in the in the larger world. Well, it seems like you're doing exactly that anyway, so uh, good for you. Yeah, I got a late start, but I am on the right track now. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, would you like to share a little bit more? I know you talked a little bit about Girls Ed and Wasisha. Um, sort of share your online media details uh, so that people who want to either get in touch with you or your organization and learn more about what you are doing, uh, how can they go about doing that? Yeah, so the easiest way is... Um, through Girls Ed, and so the website is girlsed.org, and our email is info at girlsed.org, and then on Facebook, we have pages for both Girls Ed and Project Waysasia, and yeah, anyone can email us or contact us through Facebook, and we'd be more than happy to share updates and pictures and interviews with the girls. Both websites have blogs, and so there's a lot of stories and reports and updates on the work we're doing. Rachel, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Thank you so much for all the work that you are doing, at times single-handedly, to expand and support educational opportunities for underserved girls and women in remote and underdeveloped regions of the world. As an African man, it really touches me that someone from halfway around the world who doesn't share my same heritage, culture, or race would go out of their way to help and support people that she has never met before. You know, I watched a TED Talk in the summer, and hearing your story and what you are doing has made that presentation come flooding back. The woman presenting said that, I want you to imagine 80 or 100 years from now, and your grandchild is showing a picture of you to your great-grandchildren. What is the story you want them to tell about your life? I have a feeling yours will be one that they will be extremely proud of. 
And with that, we'll wrap up the show. Hey, listener, just one more quick thing. Do you enjoy following this show? Or were there moments you found inspiring or instructive? Can you think of anyone, a friend, a coworker, a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second to share the podcast with them. Tell them about it. Direct them to the podcast Facebook page by just searching for On the Shoulders of Giants podcast in the Facebook search field. Or direct them to my website, tcrutanira.com. Or lastly, just show them how to subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast feed. Because we all grow when good ideas and messages are shared. Next time on the podcast on the shoulders of giants, I discover how a simple decision to volunteer for the Obama 2008 presidential election campaign ultimately led to Alison Lackman being hired to serve as the Obama White House Chief Financial Officer and in 2012 being hired to serve as Chief of Staff for Michelle Obama for the 2012 Obama re-election campaign. It's a little bit of a circuitous route. I will give my daughter a lot of credit. She was going to school, a high school in New Hampshire where politics is like religion, and she was writing for the school newspaper. Uh, she was doing the column on um, students for Obama. So for her 16th birthday, I took her to a fundraiser back when you could see President Obama for a couple hundred bucks. And it was transformative for her and for me to just actually meet him in person. And that was great, but I didn't think anything more about it. And then right before the New Hampshire primary, she called me and said that they all got the day off at school so they could go out and canvas. And I just thought, wow, if my 16-year-old can do this, I need to get off the couch and go do something. So <laughs> I called up and you know answered one of the many emails because once you make a donation, you get all those emails. And I just said, is there something you need me to do? And so I went down to the field office in Chicago and made phone calls to South Carolina, which was not my comfort zone. I don't like calling people and asking them how to vote. I do think it is important that you vote, but I'm not necessarily one to share that. But as I was leaving, I saw someone that I had met before at the fundraiser and I said, look, I'm an accountant. If you need help, let me know. I'm happy to help come in and volunteer. And she said, well, shoot me an email. And so I literally sent a two paragraph email talking about, you know, I, you know I'm a, a CFO. I can do whatever budgeting, all these things for you. Let me know if you need help. They lost the New Hampshire primary. I got called the next day and said, can you come in and volunteer? And I said, sure. I'll, yeah, I'll come in. How about tomorrow? And they're like, no, how about you come in today? And I went in and it was, you know, it was, it was the right time and the right place. I had skills they needed and I had no predisposition about what, 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 what I needed. I just wanted to help. 